Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob. Yes. Welcome to a video episode. Yeah. So for those of you listening on your iPhones or whatever, you won't be seeing the video, but if you want to, you can go to YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, then you see this. Uh, as usual, Bob, I have a lot of things I want to talk with you about. Not any particular one thing. How much of my t-shirt can you see? Uh, how much can the t-shirt? You see Seabrook. That's all you see. Oh, okay. And then I, top of the USA. I've been coming here for a year, and I always wear a nice shirt, and, you know, here we are. And then today, today. I sprung the video on you. Well, yeah. So this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am uh, also a therapist here in town in Seattle with uh, uh, nearby you and um, your friend from graduate school from way back when. Is it freaky to be on video? Do I, I probably look a little self-conscious, don't I? Well, I don't know. Does, does it freak you out a little bit? No, I feel like it's just the same old, same old. You and me, we just kind of talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this email is specifically to you and me, Bob, from an anonymous patron. Okay. Hello, Kirk and Bob. On a recent episode, actually, no, I want to talk with you about something first. Sure. Because I'm sure a lot of people want to know, is our last episode, yeah. you went into um, you know detail and of your own vulnerability and your own thoughts and feelings around your own attachment issues. Yeah. How your, um, you've had a lot of feelings over the years about your therapist and whether or not he likes you or not. Yes. And you talked a lot about your own marriage and your path from trauma. And we got a lot of emails about it. And I just wanted to debrief with you. How did, how did, oh. it, how did it feel? How does it feel to look back on it? How did it feel to do it? Um, uh, some of the emails moved me to tears. It was really lovely to read those things and to think that I were having a decent impact or our conversation had a good impact on people. It uh, made me feel proud. Um, um, I, I think after that, that uh, talk we had that day, I remember um, when I was leaving here remarking to you that I felt like genuineness was like um, a strong value of mine. So I feel good about it. And I listened to it the other day, yesterday actually, and um, I, I I thought I was a little dis <laughs> talking about disorganized. I thought I was a little disorganized in talking about it. I really appreciated the ways in which you kept us on track and kept us focused. And actually, Colleen and I listened to it together. She said the same thing. She's like, "Kirk is really good at keeping this going and organized." And you know, you're very kind to me. And um, I feel good about that episode, and I feel good about the. Um, so what I read of the impact we had on, on peeps out there. So that's good. Yeah. People said they cried along with you. Mm -hmm. They said that your feelings exactly represented their own feelings mm -hmm. towards their therapists, towards their spouses mm -hmm. and how no one had ever articulated it mm -hmm. in the way that you had, mm -hmm. especially from such a visceral level and how for some people the episode was life changing. It's great. Yeah. I'm glad to know that. Yeah. Uh, you weren't disorganized at all in terms of the path you took. You, hmm. I thought it was extremely organized. Oh, okay. I mean, I think there were times when you went down some tangents. Tangents. There were, there were, I mean, tangents isn't the right word to it. 
you started going down a path to further the conversation and you got a little lost yeah, a couple that's, times. That's but true. aside from that, like, I think it's just a common thing that when we listen back to ourselves, there's always some kind of like, what am I doing? Yeah. And one of the things that people often criticize themselves is for not being on track enough. And, and, uh, I would not characterize that oh. in that way at all. Okay. Um, how does it feel to read all those, you know, those messages? I mean, have you felt that you were alone in this or is it just like, yeah, I know, I know all you people are out there or I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. You know, I, I found them really moving and touching. Um, do I feel like I'm alone? You know, maybe I do, you know, maybe I'm as alone as any of those folks who wrote in, um, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I I mostly felt really moved. I remember feeling really excited and pleased. I mean, there were like somewhere between six and ten on Friday. Is that when you published it? Uh-huh. Yeah, six and ten. You forwarded to me on Friday, um, and I it just totally it made my day. It was, just, it was a really good day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been interesting because, I, and I've said this before to you, but I don't know if on the podcast, when I started this podcast 11 years ago, I, I wanted it to be you and me. Yeah. And I asked you, yeah. And you were like, not, nah, not for me. Uh-huh. And at the time, I don't know. I thought it was because you thought, uh, eh, that sounds kind of dumb. But no. later you told me it was because you thought you didn't have anything to offer. I, I, I remember that. Yeah. And which was fine. Plus it was like, kind of a pipe dream at the time. It's like, who wants to, you know, I had a lot, I've had a lot of pipe dreams in my life and yeah, but that's cool. Yeah, but it could have been bad and Mm -hmm. it was bad at the beginning. I just persisted and figured it out as, Mm -hmm. as we went. Maybe it's still bad. I don't know, but, um, Mm, I don't think so, (laughs) but you have been on the podcast very rarely throughout the years until recently. Yeah the past year or two and you started to come on and it's two years make it more regular yeah right and right. you've become more comfortable yeah and the uh, path of our uh, us and you with the listeners toward that episode is interesting to think about yeah and how the listeners would often say oh bob's my favorite Mm-hmm. You know, they'd say, no offense, Umberto, but <laughs> I love it when Bob's on the podcast. And how one could just track those episodes towards that place mm-hmm. and how it, where are we going to go next? You know, yeah, where, right. where, where is this thing going? It's interesting to think about. I remember thinking about this at the time or afterwards, cause I listened back to it. Um, then, you know, when it posted mm-hmm. and I remember thinking this as I was listening that, you know, they used to have this thing or they still do, I suppose, but it's not very prevalent is pure therapy, pure counseling. Oh, right. Uh, did you ever do that? No, I never did it, but I'm familiar where two therapists mm-hmm. therapize each other yeah. and you each take a turn is the usual format. Sometimes it's non therapists that, Take yeah. a little bit of uh, training in basic listening skills, good reflective listening, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the therapists, they don't charge each other. No. Or they cancels each other out or something. But uh, each person oh. uh, spends uh, uh, an hour being the therapist or a half hour or whatever. Uh-huh. 
And that always appealed to me. I always thought like, what well, that'd be pretty, uh, great because wow, you would, um, depend on each other. You would, and it's not like a friendship because it's a little bit more formal, right? Yeah. It's more formal in terms right. of the unidirectionality of the healing or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I started thinking like our podcasts are turning into that a little bit. Uh, sometimes it's you, sometimes it's me. What do you think about that? I like that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I would, I'm up for that. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's I mean, already happening. I well, think. yeah, I was just saying, <laughs> I'm up to keep going. <laughs> it's too late. Uh, whether you're up for it or not, uh, it's happening. Uh, but yeah, I mean that, cause I'm just trying to think, cause there's so many people out there, perhaps everyone on some level is suffering in a way uh, where they feel alone. They feel worthless. They feel scared. They feel afraid. They feel distant. They feel rejected. They feel scared of rejection. They mm-hmm. feel concerned of rejection. And there's various different coping uh, mechanisms for that, some of which are more dysfunctional than others. Mm-hmm. And for you to lay it all out and talk about the realness of it and to, and to talk about how you deal with it and to talk about the journey and the struggle uh, and to talk about the, the other side of healing and therapy and um, the work. And it's not all fun and games. It, no. You're still triggered. There's still times and yet you're not busted up about it. You're just like, uh, I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to get triggered again and I'm going to make cognitive mistakes and behavioral mistakes but uh, I'm much better than I was before. And yeah. uh, me and my wife have figured out a way to talk to each other through those moments and recover from those moments. And that's reality. Yeah. Cause so many people email me about like, how do I get over it and how do I deal with it? And, and, um, and I'll say some version of what you laid out, I'll describe it, but I don't think it resonates as much Mm. than you actually describing for yourself the full round of, uh, you know, the full range of experiences and, and the, the visceral nature of, of it all. Mm. And I'm just trying to think of another location in the internet that provides such a thing. I'm sure there are other podcasts that are doing something similar, but I don't know. I don't know of them. The only thing I can think of is, remember those Carl Rogers films from the 60s, I think? Yeah. Where they had sessions with, you know, the various dudes. Right, which is a far cry because the listeners, by the time you had that episode uh, that you were on last, had bonded with you. They know you. Yeah, yeah. They know me. Yeah. And there's a intimacy there that yeah. is prepackaged. And so the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just an amazing thing. There, it, it, as I talk about it, I just think that it's an amazing document that um, if anything lasts after I'm dead, like that would be the one thing maybe, you know, wow. this, this example of humanness and care and self-compassion and maturity and reality around struggle emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, it's just a beautiful thing. 
you and me get to do that. Yeah, yeah. We get to do that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that's a contribution. Yeah. Yeah. So I thank you on behalf of the listeners. Thank you. I'm really <laughs> glad to be here. Good. I, I'm surprised I like coming and talking with you in this way, you know? Yeah. Uh, at first I thought, eh, okay, I'll do it because we're friends and, you know, I want to support you and you're important to me, right? Uh-huh. And I'm like, I like coming. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. I like coming. Okay. Yeah, I look forward to it. It's part of my week and um, I, I, I get so much out of listening to you. Uh, you're, you're so articulate. You're so thoughtful about it all. You're very compassionate. And I, I feel like I know you in a whole new and deeper way. And, yeah. you know, I love watching football with you and Penn State Joking around, did yeah. beat UW last time they played. And, we'll you know, see. That's, that's fun. We'll see. We have a brand new, right? well, we have two rookie quarterbacks that, uh, or oh, not, I don't know if they're rookies, but, uh. Do you have your returning quarterback? No, I graduated. Yeah, so yeah. we're both starting over. Yeah. Do you have your returning running back? Uh-uh. He's yeah, playing we, for the Giants. Yeah, so we both have... Uh, oh, Barkley was Penn yeah. State? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see, We'll right? always have Sandusky, right? So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'll always pull that one out. All right, so let's go on to Anonymous Patron here. Sure. Hello, Kirk and Bob. On a recent episode, you discussed briefly the topic of indecision. Hmm. I had a question about a statement that was made regarding being indecisive when depressed. I am now on year three of my husband's third lifetime episode, and I have researched, read, listened to podcasts, and even spoke to some psychotherapist over the years, and just want to understand as much as I can about depression for my husband. You mentioned that when on the depression spectrum, especially severe clinical depression, it is very hard to make decisions. Uh, quoting me here, they move in such a slow state that they really don't know what they want. Apparently I said something like that, which is how I think. Mm -hmm. So when people are depressed, it's just like their brain is moving at such a a slow pace in terms of um, the sequence of this is what I want. This is not what I need to do. Um, These are the steps. Okay. Get up. You know, there's things are moving at such a slow pace that, things mm-hmm. interrupt the the desire process so to speak and um it they're just like well i, I don't i i'm coming up blank I, I would rather just not think about it or something do you think that's diminished executive functioning or is that just distracted i think it's to some extent diminished executive functioning because yeah. think about all of us out there you and me included when we are tired it's late at night and you're tired and you just want to go to bed Mm -hmm. and you're not depressed, but your brain isn't operating at all on all, you know, six cylinders and you're faced with an important decision. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, I can't do it. Right. right. I, I just go, right. I'm just going to go back to Netflix because that's all my brain can handle right now. And it's weird because midday, boom, I'm on it, but come, before, just before, you know, last maybe hour or two before I go to bed. And right. I'm like, I can't imagine trying to figure that right. out right now. Um, and so imagine being really depressed all the time. Mm. You just, you just like, and so anyway, um, I agree and understand that this is so, but cannot understand why or what you meant by that. My husband has made great strides from 2018 and new medication has made a miraculous improvement 
but he still has all the underlying symptoms, including not being able to make personal decisions. If one is able to work and make important decisions at work, why not on a personal level? Is it just that they do not have the capacity? What do you think, Bob? Uh, maybe there's a roteness to the tasks at work. Certain behaviors are expected and so overlearned and they're easier to make. Um, maybe there's a different emotional charge. Uh, right. So I imagine that's going to, uh, you know, have an impact. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the anonymous patron isn't saying what they're uh, upset about regarding their husband's indecision. Mm-hmm. I suspect it probably has things to do with uh, should we buy a house or not, or uh, should we go on a vacation or even what movie do you want to watch tonight or something? Right. Um, yeah. So as you say, certain roteness or certain um, uh, ease of making decisions at work, you know, your, your practice at it, there's, there's only a certain amount of options or something. Right. And so maybe that's a part of it. And then at home, the decisions are potentially much more emotionally laden, right? Uh, emotionally consequential. Nicely put. And so you could be more overwhelmed. Another thing is that it, because basically what she's saying is that he used to be very depressed, but now he's much less depressed. And yet he still has this, this underlying symptom of indecision. Mm -hmm. It's possible that while he was depressed, he became habitually indecisive and that's retained after being quote unquote, less symptomatic. Oh, curious. Just habit of, well, so again, I don't know if this is true for your husband, but it, imagine for five years, every time you're faced with an important decision at home, you put a little bit of energy into it and it doesn't go well and you get yelled at or you feel disappointing to other people. Mm -hmm. You feel criticized. Like the whole thing just gets wrapped up in a whole, you know, shit present that, that you're given. And it's just like, ugh, this is when I'm faced with making a decision, things go bad. So then year three of the depressive episode, you're like faced with a decision. You're like, look, I know if I even give off the impression that I'm available to make a decision, things are going to go badly. And maybe this is even kind of subconscious for the person. Mm-hmm. So they're just like decisions and me don't mix. Well, you learn that lesson, just like you learn various other lessons, like how to ride a bicycle or something. And then you're no longer depressed. And then, boom, you're faced with that decision. And you just have this automatic habitual reaction of saying, um, don't ask me. I, if Even if I begin the process of trying to parse this out. Yeah. The other thing is, is that you're, I find m- a lot of people are depressed for good reasons. They're depressed for... Uh, mistreatment reasons being mistreated by parents or siblings or past spouses, past partners, um, current partners, society. And that can lead to a certain amount of demoralization in general Mm -hmm. and a certain amount of um, lack of self and a devaluation of the self. And so even though he isn't depressed in terms of he can get out of bed he doesn't sleep all day. His appetite is more regulated. He still 
believes deep down that he's not worth anything or hasn't really connected with who he is. The the main thing with indecision is like we're you know when we're when we're often dealing with indecision oh. problems, we're we're dealing with we're either yelling at ourselves like how come I'm so indecisive or we're yelling at some why are you so indecisive? The implication is that if I just yell at you to be decisive, you'll be decisive. But the thing is is that when things are working well, you don't have to encourage someone to be decisive. Why? Because they're connected with their needs and their wants to such an extent that their decisions just spew out of them. Like I'm not indecisive because I'm pretty close to I'm pretty close to who I am and how I feel. Right. And when I have a need, when I have a want, I I it just spouts out of me. I don't have to try to make a decision. When my wife asked me, she asked me last night, she was making eggs and she said, uh, (laughs) she's like, uh, do you want an omelet or do you want a scramble? And I was like, I like both. So honestly, and I I was like, and I was kind of thinking about her because I was thinking, um, well, whichever is easier for you. I, it, I don't, I, I feel bad that you're making the eggs to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I just said something, well, whatever's easiest for you, you know, whatever, whatever you think is best. Cause I honestly, I'm pretty ambivalent about it. And then she kind of gave me this face like, oh, well, that doesn't really help me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't know. Omelet. Cause I don't know if, if I had a slight preference, I'd, I guess omelets. I had a gun scramble. Oh, really? <laughs> I feel like omelets, they're a little bit more meaty. You know, they're a little bit more, you know, like like you're eating like a patty instead yeah. of just like a air fluff. Anyway, uh-huh. I, I certainly love, anyway, uh-huh. just like a 51% deal. Yeah, yeah. So I said to her, um, well, maybe an omelet because, uh, you know, I like it a little better. And she, she goes, oh, you had to pick the hard one. Oh, it's a setup. Choose, but choose right. <laughs> You didn't choose right. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, she made the omelet. It was, it was great. But cool. the, the point is, is that, uh, I immediately know what I want. You know, it, it's, I, I'm very, sure. I'm very clear. Right. Um, and, and it's not because I've made a choice to be decisive. It's because I was given a life right. and have a life that allows me to, to have the luxury of knowing who I am and what yeah. I want. And so it's possible that your husband, anonymous patron, uh, is still developing that, that he's still. So if you want to focus on something, I wouldn't necessarily focus on the depression because that absolutely can affect indecisiveness. But I might also start focusing on who is he and what is he and how does he feel? Because it might take him a long time to develop a connection to that. And that takes time. Might catch him being good, too. Like, I don't mean being good, like he's a good guy or a good person, but like when he's decisive, you might reinforce it or highlight it. Yeah. You know, or even just what he wants, like just being like, how do you feel? And he's like, um, I don't know. I feel pretty good. And so you can reward that. Like, oh, great. Thanks. Thanks for telling me. I'm glad to know what your insides are happening. Right. Right. Yeah. Hey, I feel like uh, stepping outside for a breath of fresh air. Oh, okay. You're actually saying what you want. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought you literally meant that because it's getting a little hot. It's stuffy. <laughs> no, I'm good. Hey, you know, while you were talking, I was thinking. Actually, I can't open the door right next oh, to you. Well, But continue. I was uh, remembering that, you remember that Seligman research from the early 70s at UPenn where he had the dogs in the cages and he was shocking them? Do you remember this one? Uh, no. So, so he had two conditions of dog. This is uh, awful experiment 
Um, and by the way, Martin Seligman is one of the positive psychology guys, ironically enough. So he did this experiment where um, dogs in metal cages, and there were two conditions, um, both of which are being shocked. But one dog had an exit, and the other one didn't. So the ones that had an exit, as you can imagine, exited. They got away. Yeah. And the ones that didn't, what they did is they, they wandered around in the cage. They sort of... Uh, in circles around the cage and then whimpering and then they laid down and still whimpering and eventually and they're still getting shocked the whole time eventually they just stopped they just laid there and didn't move and getting shocked and not doing anything and then here's the kicker the kicker is he presented them an exit and they didn't take it wow and he he coined the phrase learned helplessness oh right with the idea that that the helplessness is learned, and so maybe anonymous patron's spouse, his brain's just stuck yeah. for now. Yeah. And um, I think with practice, you know, I mean, I think about those poor dogs. I imagine there's some kind of impression that's made on their brains that's probably somewhat indelible. But all yeah. dogs can be taught to get up and move, to learn how to... Anyways, and they also look depressed, by the way. Yeah. That's a powerful example yeah. of what... So we often look at someone like that. So if the dog were to be released and were to uh, be in a happy home right? and it just sat there on the ground, right? one might say, oh, man, that dog's really depressed. Well, let's give the dog Lexapro and or whatever, some medication that yeah. fix, the, fix the dog's depression. Well, you give the dog a mood enhancer... And the dog, you know, it's a little better. It gets up, walks around. But it still learned a very horrible lesson that needs to be corrected for yeah. and unlearned. And yeah. so, anyway. Interesting. Anonymous patron, uh, she says, I'm just writing in to pick your brain about academic burnout. Well, a couple years ago, my academic burnout led to stress-induced psychosis. Oh, wow. I thought I was in love with my lecturer and thought we were communicating telepathically. Oh, wow. I thought other lecturers were evil. Mm. I read books by letting the wind, I read books by letting the wind decide which page to turn to. And the list goes on and on in terms of my psychosis. Mm -hmm. While I can laugh about the aspects of it now, Mm. glad about that. Yeah. At the time it was terrifying and led to a suicide attempt at the end of the psychotic period. I'm not sure about psychosis being common in regards to academic burnout or just burnout in general, but I do know that a lot of students are feeling the same strain that led me to the break. As a teacher yourself, have you noticed any patterns with students burning out? What can individuals and institutions do to decrease the toll on students' well-being? And do you find that a particular type of student is more prone to burning out? So, Bob, what do you think? Uh, have you noticed patterns of students burning out? I don't have a lot of students, so no. I mean, I don't have any students. I was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know if I have anything to say about that. I, You know, you have probably a lot to say about that. You've had hundreds of students. I have a lot to say about a lot of things. Um, yeah, burnout's a big problem. Yeah. Uh, I monitor all my supervisees. and Well, now this door open, we're getting a lot of... That's a seaplane, probably. Yeah. So in Seattle, we have a lot of seaplanes, and they they fly very low. 
Are you in the airline? No. My yeah. last house I was. This yeah. one, it's like I opened the door and yeah. we've had, I think there's been three. This is the third one. Yeah. Yeah. In the span of yeah. five minutes. In my house, they, all the all the airlines fly overhead. Right. So my house, and, when I used my last house, we used to be right below. Right. It was like right. every five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yes, burnout is a big problem. I monitor all my supervisees and my students pretty closely mm -hmm. for burnout because it's not easily detected and, and students and supervisees rarely bring it up. It's usually something that I have to say, I think you're burning out and they will be like, well, what do you mean? And I'll, I'll tell them the symptoms and they'll be like, really? You know, the symptoms that I see and that are in the research are one lack of compassion. So if you're a therapist and you're having a hard time being empathetic and having compassion for your clients and you'll hear therapists talk this way, sometimes they'll just be like, Oh, this client, you know, like, you know, wah, 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 <laughs> whatever they do. And it's like, oh, okay. I'm guessing you didn't enter the field with that attitude. <laughs> so you're burning out and you're overwhelmed and you don't have time for yourself. You don't, you know, because it's a known thing that as you, as you start to become overwhelmed, one of the first things that goes is your ability to com have compassion sure. for other people, which makes total sense. Yeah. You're, you're too much trying to protect the self right. to care about other people. Um, the other thing that I see in burning out students and novice therapists is everything is a chore. So they'll have a paper to write or they'll need to file a certain form or something with the state. And they'll just be like, oh, I just can't, I just can't do it, you know? Yeah. And it's such a simple task, you know? Uh, one of the things that I often see in recent grads that I'm supervising is that they hate dealing with taxes because taxes can feel overwhelming. Oh, yeah. Um, I have a very itchy nose. I feel like there's probably a cat hair. And now I'm on video, like, picking my nose. This is gross. Um, so they will avoid doing their taxes. And the whole time I'm saying, uh, there's, you can't avoid, you know, that's a, that's there's a, two things you can't avoid in life. That's a whole one is death and the other one's taxes. Yeah. And so it's sort of a catch 22 because uh -huh. in order for them to deal with their taxes, they can't be a novice therapist anymore. Anyway. Um, the other is lack of energy. Yeah. People will feel like they never get enough sleep or they never, they're just like, they're desperately looking forward to some distant future day when they finally get to relax and not have any errands to run. The other is bad sleep, and the other is uh, poor work. So with my students, they'll turn in bad work. And this is, this is the burnout that I look for. And with my supervisees and my students, I, you know, I really try to help them out. And the, the, the thing that almost always fixes it. What do you think always fixes it, Bob? Taking a break? Right. Taking a break. Yeah. Vacation. Oh, vacations. Those are good. Yeah. You know, when you, how long was it after you graduated 22 years ago, did you take a vacation, like a good week or two off? Oh, the first vacation I ever took, I was 38. So this is 30. 10 years 10 years into your career. 39. Okay. 11 or something. Uh-huh. A decade into your career uh -huh. as a therapist uh -huh. was your first vacation. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, yeah. So that's very common to, to therapists. It is uh, because a, a number of things, in, in private practice people um, in particular. 
because we tend to be givers. We tend to be uh, martyrs, <laughs> self-sacrificers. We tend to be go-getters, mm. ambitious. We tend to be, uh, and then when we go into private practice, we're self-employed, baby. We don't get paid vacation. Mm. We don't get sick days. Mm. And there's lean times mm. where you're, you know, a few clients terminate and your practice is slimming out. Like in 2008, when the economy crashed, like all of our practices uh, suffered. I, I thought I was going to have to move back in with my parents. Oh, really? And I was, yeah, I was 37 at the time. Wow. I got busier then. Oh, really? I, yeah. I got super busy like six months after the, after the thing. No kidding. But like while in late 2008. Right. During the thing. Um, and then it snowed big that winter. Remember that big snow? just yes. after christmas yeah i do now i remember yeah 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 and no one could drive in yeah, seattle and that, car racing and that bus like almost went off the, the edge like in superman yeah it was like teetering on the edge yeah none of my clients could make it to my house so right. and i couldn't charge them and i had so few other books. anyway yeah so there's lean years and you remember those lean years and you think uh, if i take a vacation what if my clients terminate with me what if that's what I always thought, right? Um, they'll, they'll suddenly learn that I'm a fraud and they don't really need me. And, yeah. uh, and you, you have all these thoughts going around your mind uh-huh. that, that are, that are to some extent slightly rational in the first couple of years of your private practice because mm-hmm. money is an issue. Sure. And, uh, the longevity of your business is kind of teetering like the bus off, off of I five. Yeah. And so once you get established, you're still in that mindset. I think another mindset is like when you're an intern, when you're still in graduate school, you're treated like crap. You know, you're treated like, okay, fine. We'll give you clients if you're good to us. You know Uh, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And instead of like, thank you so much for giving us free labor. In fact, I'm pretty sure you're paying money to your university to help our clients, which makes our business profitable. I, as a staff therapist, wouldn't have my job or I would be paid half as much if you didn't work here for free. Yeah. That's not the attitude they have. No. They have much attitude of like, you're a peon, uh, we'll, we'll give you clients. You know, so you're, just, you're begging for clients, you're begging for hours. And so all this sets up this mentality of, I just don't take vacations. You yeah. know, when, am I, when, when do I have time to take a vacation? I, yeah, that was me. And so when you don't do that and you're working with very difficult populations and in the beginning of one's career, that's often the case because mm-hmm. you don't really have a choice of who you work with. So you're hearing all this trauma and the clients are improving very quickly and you're overworked and you're worried about even making money in this, you know, you're very stressed out. You're, you're going into debt more and then I say, and you know, you're getting burnt out. Then I say, you need a vacation. And they'll be like, ha ha ha, very good one. And I'll be like, no, I, I'm serious. Yeah. You're one, most importantly, you're, you could, as this person, have a psychotic break, which is rare, yeah. but can happen. Sure. Or I, which is more common to see is like uh, crying yourself to sleep in a fetal position every night. Yeah. Or irritability and jadedness. Right. Blech. Having, uh, drinking more. Yeah. Smoking yeah. pot more. Yeah, right. Your marriage starts to tank. Your sexual libido starts to tank. Right. Um, 
all these symptoms. So one, you need a vacation to save you and your marriage and your life and all that kind of stuff. But two, your clients are not benefiting from you being this way because you're losing compassion for everybody. You're losing the ability to think straight with everybody. Yeah. So on some level, ethically speaking, you have to take a vacation. Yeah. Um, so the other thing here is... Got to go to Maui, Dr. orders. Right. Or just the staycation, honestly. Yeah. And universally it works. I, every time uh, one of my supervisees does this, they come back and they be like, man... Yeah. That felt good. Yeah. I, I feel, yeah, I have a completely different attitude now. Uh-huh. I'm back ready to go. Um, when I was 39, I took my first vacation, which was, um, you know, like I took breaks from work, like a week off here or there, but to go visit my family in the East coast. And those are different from, um, vacations. Right. So Colleen, depending says, on your family, so I guess, right? Yeah. Right. And I love my family and yeah. it's fine. But, um, anyways, uh, Colleen's like, no, we're going on vacation and we're going to take two weeks. And I'm like, I'm not going to have a practice if I take two weeks. She's like, well, I'm going on vacation and you're coming with and we're taking two weeks. The second week, I was like, oh, that's why people do this. Because wow. it takes a week to oh. settle into it. And now if I take a vacation, it's not two weeks. I'm like, what's the point? Yeah. You know, that second week is just really great. Where'd you go on that first vacation? We went to South Carolina to visit her best friend. And and she's like, eh, it was okay. I'm like, that's one of the best vacations I've ever taken. Low and, pressure. Yeah. And, you know, her friend was fun and her friend's boyfriend was fun. And we just kind of hung out. And it was, it was just great. We just hung out together. It was fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It was just, you know, whatever. Yeah. But it was fabulous. So institutions need to pay more attention. I, I think you were asking about this. Oh, what can individuals and institutions do to decrease... Uh, the toll on students' well-being. Well, institutions, they need to pay more attention, which I don't know if they always do. I don't think they're going to. Yeah. Uh, they also need to monitor each student, super, supervisors in particular. They're not going to do that either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you're confirming my pessimism about yeah. institutions and people. But Well, it's the path of least resistance. Yeah. It's easier to do nothing. And there's this... Uh, work ethic that I think is uh, great in some situations and bad in others. And one of the things that I see among supervisors is you got to work hard. You know, you gotta, um, you gotta show that you can produce, you gotta buck up camper, you know, and there's this attitude of like, I have to stay on top of my, therapists who are under me to keep them producing, to keep them doing their paperwork, you know, better. Yeah. 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 I remember when I've never met a therapist who wasn't personally motivated to get all those things done anyway, you know, that they are perfectionists on the scale of things, therapists in general. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I've just never felt as a supervisor, I had to rail on people, you know, that people are by the, by the time you enter the field of psychotherapy, you've, uh, you've come to re- reckon with the idea that you have to work for things, yeah. you know, anyway. Do you remember the pace back then? Like what? when you were working in an agency? Yeah. Ooh, uh. Well, I never had the pace that you did. Like you had like 30 some clients a week, right? Yeah. Yeah. At community psychiatric. Yes. Clinic. Yes. 30, yes. 30, 32, 35, somewhere yeah. in there. My agency was way more relaxed. Oh, good. Mine was like 20 or something. 
Yeah. And, but I would hear about all the other agencies. My agency was newer and run by people who didn't know what they were doing. And as a consequence, they took it easy on everyone because it, it, it looked ridiculous. Your agency had been around longer and had been more familiar with the Medicaid right. high production, uh, high money kind of scenario, push the therapist. Oh, hard. yeah. They, my, my agency was never like that. Was that Federal Way? Or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But back then, I worked full-time at the agency. Yeah. I taught at Antioch. Uh-huh. I had a private practice. Uh-huh. I was working for Mary. And you worked for Mary, right. Uh, so I was working seven days a week. Yeah. So, yeah, I know what that felt like, but not necessarily at my agency. God, can you imagine doing that now? Uh, no. How many hours a week were you working? Like 60, 70, 80, somewhere in there? 60, 70, yeah. yeah. They're probably more like 60, 65. Yeah. It was brutal. Yeah. If for someone that doesn't really like doing that kind of thing. In fact, one of the reasons why I became, why I entered graduate school is because I hated the grind of, of jobs. Right. But I think a part of it that kept me going was I loved the work and it was, yeah. it was interesting to me. Right. Right. You chose yeah. well. Yeah. And I knew it was temporary. Right. I was trying to pay off my school off your, debt. Yeah. You get out of debt and you were very and successful I, at that. I did. Well, five it, years. I think two years. Two years? Yeah. I paid oh, off $80,000 in debt in, in two years. Yeah. Because I, for the, for like the second year, I think I made something like $80,000 or something. And 50 of those thousands went to my debt. I remember thinking, I'm now paying more money to my debt than I'm spending. Like that's something to that say. That's something. One, Especially here. Well, one, I'm making a lot of money, which feels good. Yeah. Relative to what I was making as a in other industries. Uh-huh. And two, um, oh, what was number two? <laughs> number one, I'm making, oh, and two, I'm living like a college student on $25,000 a year. Yeah. You know, inc- that includes rent, right. food, and car. And you know. I, I love that apartment you were in. That was so fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a fun apartment. Um, the weird thing about that apartment, two weird things. One, the landlords lived, so it was a chiropractor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right next door. Did they, they live next door? They lived downstairs. So they owned the, the whole building right. and it was a small building. And so it was a chiropractor office right next door. I had the sort of main corner apartment. They right. lived downstairs. So they controlled the thermostat for the entire building. There, it was a really old building. And there was one thermostat and it was in their apartment. And so there'd be times where my apartment in the winter time would be like 105 degrees. I'd walk home and cause there's a radiator and it would just be like, Oh, and I just open the windows in the middle of the winter. Cause it was so hot. Uh, the other weird thing was it, he wouldn't let me shower. So it was a bathtub. Oh, that's right. I remember. Yeah. And so for the few years I lived there, I took a bath. Uh, right. Every day. Yeah. And I had super long hair. You had long hair back then. And a lot of it. Yeah, you did. Like my hair went down to my butt and it was, it was like, have you seen Moana? Like uh, the cartoon? Uh-huh. Yeah. My hair looked like his, it's like, I have Japanese American hair. Yeah. Which is very big and wavy and stuff gets stuck in it and I would have to uh, dunk my head backwards, you know, anyway. Yeah. 
Um, I took a bath in that tub. You did. Also, as institutions, we need to talk about it more. We need to talk about burnout more to raise awareness. You know, I totally agree. And I see for institutions very little incentive other than a moral obligation. But I don't think that most people who are overworked. Yeah, yeah. Um, that stu- sounds really cynical, doesn't it? No. To reflect this, a student actually came to me uh, last quarter and said that he was burning out. And he asked, he was like, he really sheepish about it. He was just like, I feel like I'm going crazy. Um, my supervisor is abusive, mm-hmm. which she yeah. kind of is. Yeah. Or she really is. But just on, you know, anyway. And... I'm overworked. I haven't had a vacation in a long time. I, I just, I just need a break. Is it okay? I've been thinking about taking next week off from my internship and from school. And I was like, yeah, dude, do it. Good for you. I mean, when people ask me to do that, I'm like, good for you. Cause if you're asking me, you need it. You probably waited too long. Right. Kind of thing. Right. <laughs> if you're for asking me, you should have asked me if I should chastise you for not asking me three months ago. Right. And he and a bunch of other students were astonished at how readily I was to agree to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think one thing is, is I come across as this really tough guy instructor that f- likes to f- fail people. I don't like to fail people, but I have no problem failing people. Let's just put it that way. Especially if I told you exactly what you needed to do to pass the class and you didn't do it. But the... um they were so astonished. And I, I was like, why are you surprised? I mean, I'm glad is did I say something that made you think that you wouldn't get this approved. And the students are saying, well, other instructors don't necessarily have this attitude. No, they have that two miss rule, right? Or the one miss rule or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of varies. I mean, the two is the uh, university standard, but yeah. instructors have different approaches. But he was like, yeah, I went to my past instructor and asked her, like, specifically um, the same thing. And she said, no, absolutely not. And I was like, oh, that's awful. Yeah. The last thing is, is therapy. You know, I feel like you should be in therapy if you're burning out. Um, yeah. Early, early uh, work in this field absolutely requires you be in weekly therapy. And, and then support your buds, your friends, your partner, your right. family, whoever. Yeah. How do you let off steam? I mean, the other thing is, is aside, I guess if vacations are a bit of a luxury, how do you just really let off steam and turn off all the cell phone stuff? Like you take a Saturday and you just like, okay, I'm not going to think about work. Uh, I'm not going to think about errands. Things are going to fall to the wayside. That's fine. But I just need, and you just do what you like to do, whether it's hiking or playing video games or going on a bender, <laughs> you just do, you know, you know what you, what you need. Um, you also ask uh, Adonis patron, uh, what types of students are vulnerable? And I, I gave it some thought. Can you think of any, the types of students that would be vulnerable to burnout? Probably anxious people, unself-confident people, I should think would uh, be perhaps vulnerable because they'd work harder. Um, did I say unself-confident? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, I think you did. Huh? I think you did. No. Oh. I'm not so confident in that no, statement. I, I can't stand behind that. We'll have to rewind the tape. <laughs> yeah. Um, depressed people, probably. Yeah. Uh, Going to have a harder time. Um, I don't know. Who do you think? Well, the thing that popped into my mind that I see 
often is perfectionistic people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's various different kinds of perfectionism, but there's one kind where there's this worry about not being good enough for other people. And it's a perfectionism that is pretty destructive. And for those people, if they're privileged enough, smart enough or something, up until being a therapy student, they will have managed it well enough. You know, you're a perfectionistic young woman in the 11th grade in high school. Well, high school is not that hard. So, you know, you kiss ass to all your teachers, you study on Sunday night for the test and you do well in high school and you're, and you're like, okay, I'm good enough. Everything's okay. College the same way. Four year college is most of the time pretty similar. You work hard, you follow the instructions, you memorize the book and you'll, you'll get good grades. Then you become a, a counseling or a therapy student and all bets are off. There's no way to gauge if you're doing okay. <laughs> um, in fact, at my university, our university, we don't even give grades. There's no grades. You can fail the class, which yeah. is a grade. But aside from that, you're just told general feedback. Yeah. And people naturally, for whatever reason, feel terrible about themselves anyway as therapy students. They're just like, I'm, I'm a fraud. I don't know what I'm doing. How am I ever going to do this? Which is... 99% of the time inaccurate. Mm. Um, and so they're already starting a deficit and they're, and they, they, they rely on their perfectionistic mantra, which is like, okay, hit the books hard, study hard, ask the teacher a lot of questions and I'll eventually feel like I'm in the perfect zone because oh, perfectionists yeah. need to be perfect. Yeah. They can't just be in the ambiguity of like, well, I think I'm doing well. They need to know they're doing well. Yeah. And immediately I see these students crumble and will uh, sometimes tell me how much they're crumbling. They'll just be like, uh, you know, I'm really stressed out. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't sleep at night. Uh, I know you keep telling me that everything's okay and I'll figure this out, but I just feel like I'm never going to know this stuff. And I, I don't really understand the material very well. And what I tell them is uh, it took me 20 years to understand the material. So, you're not going to understand the material. Um, and the first 10 clients you have, you might fuck them up. Yeah. Uh, and they might not want to see you anymore. Yeah. Because you're so nervous or you're too focused on trying to be a quote-unquote good therapist. Right. You're not really listening. And that's that's life. That's what's going to happen. So it's Developmentally appropriate and yeah. tragic all at once. Yeah. Being a therapist is a lifelong journey of education experience and wisdom when did you think you got good uh, well that's an interesting question i mean i know it's because it's a moving target but well if i understand your question right i think i got good about six months after i graduated um in terms of me saying walking away from a shift and saying huh, I think I kind of nailed it with a few clients today. Prior to that, I would convince myself that I was trying and that I was doing some good because clients would come back and I felt like I was doing some good. But I remember at the end of my internship saying, 
really just trying to think back to the clients because I could, you know, back then you can remember all your clients like very well, right? Of course. I was like, okay, running through my head, I was like, I don't think I helped any one of those people. Like there's no evidence that I really helped any of those mm-hmm. people. So, but I, but six months after I graduated, I wasn't like, yeah, I'm awesome. It wasn't until seven years later that I could really say, I think I've finally reached a point where I can, I know that I'm going to be a good therapist today. I can, I'm fast enough on my toes. I have enough repertoire. I'm, I'm relaxed enough. I have enough sort of automatic conceptualization in my head. Mm, I have, nice I, I can, I can pay attention enough to the relationship. Um, I, I don't have to remind myself with little, cause I used to have all these post-it notes in my office, little, little quips like listen or, you know, get out of your ego or something, you know? And, uh, felt like I didn't need those anymore, but I'm still getting better. I oh, think. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? When did you get good? Probably about two years ago, two years ago. Yeah. Well, you must be working on a different metric than I was asking the question. Maybe. I don't know. I have a problem. You know me. I have a confidence problem in general. So, but I, I guess I sort of think I read somewhere. Remember, I remember telling you this way back when, um, that the first five years after graduate school, therapists are pretty much just trying to learn technique. And so I think it's the nuts and bolts of, um, how to sit with the client and not necessarily, and how to do, I'm not saying how they learn how to do a particular kind of therapy, like CBT or whatever, but like the, um, um, I don't know the generic stuff that goes yeah. with being, you know, whatever. And yeah. five, you spend five years doing that. But I think um, getting competent has been like this sort of dawning for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me if this is accurate for you. You, as a, you were influenced and trained by particular sorts of strains of therapy in the beginning. Oh yeah. And had particular kinds of clients, I guess, in the beginning. Yeah. And went down some very fruitful paths that were uh, sound. Yeah. But for whatever reason, it wasn't until recently that you started going down conceptual paths and personal paths with regards to your clients that had to do with attachment. Yes. That's the last seven years, but really the last two. Yeah. And then you felt like, oh, wow, now I'm really doing the good work. Yeah. 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 Because for me, I was the first theory I loved with, was object relations. Oh, me too. But I went down the attachment object relations kind of road. That's a good road. And in family therapy, maybe there's more talk about attachment and much less talk about CBT. I remember seeing these brochures for these trainings about attachment. And I'm like, oh, this is the latest fad, whatever, blah, 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 blah. With, which is kind of funny now because I'm like, well, what is a person? Like, what actually is a person? It's like, well, if you're, if you're not thinking about this, you're probably missing the boat on something so fundamental. Because you were more sort of CBT-oriented 10 years ago, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a good direction. Yeah, it's fine. But it's just... Depending. Just... Um, uh, not the full repertoire and not necessarily getting to the root of the issue uh, yeah. for many of the clients that we work with. I mean, some people come in with a classic CBT issue, but a lot of our clients are coming in for not classic CBT issues. Yeah. If you have a CBT issue, like say phobia, say, I mean, that's the easy one, right? I mean, the most simple, uh, that's the, 
Easiest one for me to think of off the top of my head. That's a very simple thing. You're probably not going to be doing attachment-oriented therapy for a person who's got, you know, fear of flying. I've never had a client that had fear of flying, but I had a client once who hit someone with their car. Like Mm -hmm. they're they're on Capitol Hill, they're driving down the street, and it's late at night, and somebody walked out in the street, and it wasn't that they were crossing against the light, and this person hit them with the car. And she saw me for five sessions, and we just did straight CBT, prolonged exposure. We went to the, it was kind of cool because my office was four blocks away from wherever the accident was. So we just went there, and she told the story of the thing, and then we drove around the neighborhood in her car. And you ran over someone to, uh, well, um, to expose I, her to. I, I dodged the car so that I, you know, I, I used myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we drove to the police station because the sight of cop cars was scaring the hell out of her, you know? Mm. And straightforward, and after the fifth session, she actually didn't reschedule and didn't respond to any of my follow-up, you know, and because she was done. Yeah. That's one out of 2,000 clients you've had? Yeah. yeah. Simple, straightforward, and it's cool. Yeah. Like, actually, it's pretty rewarding yeah. if you can help somebody with a thing like that and see their progress over, you know, five, six weeks. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So all this is reminding me of something that I want to talk about, but we need oh, to get a break. Thing, huh? Okay. So we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. Some of the best episodes we've had with Bob have been patron-only episodes. So if you're not a patron, do so. Uh, if you are at a certain tier, you get certain kind of swag, like a, a mug or a pen or stickers or a card. Or at a, at a higher level, you actually get one hour of consultation with me or Bob or Umberto or whoever is associated with the podcast. And someone actually is at the most deserving listener and is going to use that free hour of consultation with you. We did it. We did it. Friday. Okay. Well, don't talk about the content, but how did it go? It was really cool. I really enjoyed talking to that person. She's fabulous. Really fun. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. I mean, fun's like, you know, she's talking about something serious, but I enjoyed uh, talking to her and um, yeah, lovely. Yeah. So become a patron, become a most deserving patron and you too can... Uh, make Bob's day. <laughs> so the thing I want to talk about is uh, this would have been what ten years ago, or sir, maybe fifteen, 15. years ago. Uh, you wanted to make a instructional video of prolonged. Oh, I, oh, I was thinking of something else. What do oh, you no, think? This is fun too. What do you think I was going to talk about? That time I came to your class and we were talking about OCD. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, yeah. So this would have been yeah ten or fifteen years ago. You were living in Ballard. And you were very much interested in prolonged exposure therapy. And you wanted me to help you make an instructional video about prolonged exposure. That's right. What what were you going to use the video for? I I don't know. Like, I was teaching prolonged exposure to my clients. And I Uh, thought, you know, a great way to teach is to do, right? So we make a video of my exposure to my fear of heights and watch the progression and sort of take people through. This is what you do. And this this is what it looks like. Yeah. And this is what you can reasonably expect. And, you know, I didn't really have any plans outside of, this would be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And at the time, I had very little in the way of of uh, gear. That's right. To record you. But I had enough. Yeah. And we set out to do it. And we were spending a lot of time together at the time anyway. So it was just kind of like, yeah. let's just do this. Yeah. And I remember we got 
like three percent into this project before I think both of us realized how much work it was going to be, <laughs> and it just ended there. But the, the the one thing that we did was you took my mini disc recorder. It, it was there was a very short window where just before MP3 players came out, so it was you know everyone was trying to miniaturize sure. their their music machines. I remember those and. Prior to this, you either had a cassette or you had a CD, and that's one album. And then the technology around uh, DVDs and CDs was getting better, and so they, so Sony made this thing called a mini disc, which was a, a much smaller uh, CD essentially that had that you could read and write on both sides, and it was in a floppy disk case, so you could never you would never scratch the surface, right? And it was this tiny little player and I loved this thing. And for probably like two years, I spent like all this time, like transferring my records to mini disc, my CDs to mini disc. This is during the Napster days. I was uh-huh. getting Napster to mini disc. And I remember walking around Seattle with that mini disc player and thinking, I have like 30 albums in this tiny little thing. <laughs> and it, then like two years later, something was the iPod mm-hmm. thing. And then it was mm-hmm. just like, all bets are off. But, but, um, so I gave you my mini disc recorder and I had a little microphone and you went on top of your roof yeah. while I recorded you. Oh, I remember that day with video yeah. from the ground. Right. I did not know prolonged exposure lasted for like 45 minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I remember sitting there recording you with my hand, you know, just being like, oh, my God, this is so tiring. And then when I got the, so I had to sync the audio with the video. Right. And I just remember, I can't remember what went wrong, but the whole thing kind of fell apart. I just remember like, I didn't set it up right or the audio wasn't very good because you were in the wind. or Yeah, I was in the wind. Something about that. Um, but yeah, so it's just funny to think back because it relates to the first conversation around you and I being in a podcast together was that was kind of like an early version of, of a podcast in a sense, cause it was a media presentation of, of therapy. therapy. You were thinking of giving it to your clients, yeah. but, uh, if YouTube was around at the time or podcasting was around at the time, you might've been thinking, so isn't that interesting that you yeah. had a mind for video audio production around clinical issues yeah. uh, way before I ever knew? Yeah. You remember we went to the Aurora Bridge? No. Oh, you don't remember? Because you remember that film you made? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Well, we went to the Aurora Bridge. This is a few months before. Uh, no, no, no. It was a few months after Oh, uh, you made that film. And um, I had been sitting on my roof for 10 days. Every day for about 40 minutes a day, uh, rain or shine, it was January. Did you have a pretty bad fear of heights? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, there's people with worse, but yeah, yeah, fear of heights, yeah. Okay. So, so I was sitting there, So, and then we went to the Aurora Bridge, which was about 120 feet, I think, maybe or so, give or take, from the, you know, the ground to the, to the top of the bridge. Yeah, or whatever. people oh, yeah. kill themselves off this bridge. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And we were there for five minutes. Which was weird because when we did that film that you made before, we were there an hour and I was freaking out the whole time. We stood there for five minutes and the buses are going by and the rumbles and the wind and the whole thing. And I'm like, it's not, it's not high enough. So then we, me and you and Todd, 
hiked up to Rattlesnake Ledge. Do you oh, yeah. That? But I don't, th- I don't remember that being part of your program. Oh, yeah. Exposure. That's why we went that day. Oh. Yeah. And uh, sat there. I still have that. Todd snapped a photo of me. I don't know from where, but I'm sitting like three feet from the edge yeah. of Rat- Rattlesnake Ledge. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. I think you had the recorder then, too. Yeah. I think you were like talking, talking. into the recorder. Yeah. You're, you're like, okay, my distress level, I'm about a five. Yeah. Okay, let me, let me move forward a forward. little. Maybe I even did edit that thing, too, but I don't think I have it. That'd be funny to, to yeah, get. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. 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 Anyways, took about took about 10 days to get the fear from freaking out and then to like, Rattlesnake Ledge is a thousand foot cliff. Yeah. And that's I, pretty hairy. It's hairy. Yeah. I was probably 35 out of 100 in terms of how tense I was. Oh. Yeah. Anyways, um, how do we get on this? Oh, you wanted to talk about this. Yeah. Because we were, we were doing pre-podcasting. Right. Hey, they still call them podcasts. Yeah. Nobody has a pod anymore, right? An iPod or whatever? Not technically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. And from rumor, Apple has tried to trademark the word podcast. Yeah. Unsuccessfully. Yeah. The cat's out of the bag. Yeah. You know, it's now just, just a word in the right. English language. Like trademarking uh, right. finger. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, but this, so you mentioned that I made this film and I feel like I have to give a minute ah, on that. The film. So I got a video camera in 2002 and I had my dad's video camera growing up that I used it a lot and I would make these little home videos uh-huh. and I'd mess around in college sometimes making little documents of whatnot. And I always liked that kind of creation. Yeah. And then I got this digit, this mini, uh, mini, mini cassette. I think it was called the little, the little. Yeah, yeah. they called it digital video. It, yeah. it was oh, DV. that's right, that's right. It was like one of the. It was the first mini cassette, uh-huh. and so it was when cam- video cameras became s- small Smaller. for the first time. Still tape, though, right? Still tape, yeah. yeah. And I got you know software. In fact, I still use the software. So I bought Sony Vegas software to edit the videos back in 2002. And I, I don't know why I bought that. And uh, I think it was even owned by someone else back then. But anyway, I got used to the format. And to this day, almost 20 years later, I'm still using Sony Vegas, which is weird because most people, I don't even think Sony owns Vegas anymore. Um, anyway, it's just for you video nerds, production nerds, you'll get a kick because most people use final cut pro and there's there's a few like standard ones that everyone uses and it's like why would you use a a sony vegas it's so weird you know but i'm just used to all the buttons anyway so i uh was making little home videos and you know editing these little things together and i thought what if i started what if i actually went into film and this is when uh streaming video on the internet became popular but it was barely out. And I remember watching what people were making, uh, even though it was bad, but I was just like so excited because, because it just for back you in the real networks days. Yeah. Yeah. So real, uh, real videos yeah. or whatever, but it was in that days when YouTube didn't exist, yeah. but, or didn't really exist. And, uh, you were like, Oh my God, I can watch videos on my computer. Weird. And to young people out there, they might be like, that was a thing, but, that was a huge deal because yeah. when you could make your own home movie before this, what do you do with it? You'd have to get a studio to 
just, you know, to distribute it to, to the masses. Right. Or you'd have to play it at home for your three friends to come to your living room. Yeah. So there was no way to, to share something with anyone beyond really just, you know, your family. Right. And all of a sudden, here's this thing where you can post something on it. The entire world can see this. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And so I had a lot of time, free time at the time. And so I had this video camera. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to experiment with this. I'm going to make, I'm going to make something. I'm going to try to make the best 10 minute short I can make technically speaking, but I'm not going to really share it with anyone, but this will be like my rough draft for like, maybe I'll go into this later. And I didn't have a script. Yeah. I just had like a rough idea of what the story was going to be, but it, that wasn't very important to me. It was more important that I could just create a visual audio experience. Yeah. Because the other thing was in order, when people shoot, you know, they have a boom microphone and I didn't have any of that stuff. So I had to do everything in post. I had to do all the audio in post. Right. And uh, so there are a lot of voiceovers. voiceovers and, I, and I did a lot of sound effect stuff with my mini disc where I recorded traffic and uh, birds. And, you know, I, I did the whole thing. The story was ridiculous. It was about a rape, actually. Uh, about oh, that's a, right. Oh, my. I forgot. Beth. I was the guy, too. <laughs> You were the guy, but just the feet, right? Well, I don't remember how you played into it, but Beth, so I just got my friends to be the characters, and the story about it was this, if I remember right, that this girl gets out of the car, and she is going on a date, I think, and she sees something that reminds her of this rape that happened to her, and then we do a flashback to this rape that she had gone through. But you, no, your character had anxiety about something, crossing roads or something. Was it, was this a different story? I don't know. Anyway, the wow. point is, is that <laughs> it, it had some, some points to the yeah. short film, but yeah. it had, but the script, I didn't write a script. It was more like, I'm going to shoot a bunch of footage. Yeah. And then I'm going to piece it together. I don't really care if it's coherent, but I just want to see if I can technically make a production. And I did. And then um, I remember showing it to you guys like at a party. I was like, okay, let's watch her. And everyone was kind of like, huh? Because to me, it was again, more about the production and to everyone else. It's more about story. Cause that's why you watch things as the story. You know, no one after was like, Oh, I like what you did with the sound. Cause that's really why I was doing it. It's like, I wonder if I can do sound production. Right. Cause I hadn't, I'd been a musician, but yeah. Um, but anyway, it was so much work and uh, it was such kind of a disaster in terms of crowd appeal (laughs) (laughs) that I never did it again. (laughs) And it was, what, six years later when I actually, or five years later when I started the podcast. Um, so you, there's sort of a theme there. Anyway, yeah. um, so getting back to vulnerable types of students, um, we talked about, you talked about anxious, depressed, mm-hmm. perfectionistic. Also, people who have a lot of responsibilities and no support. Oh, yeah. So course. they have kids, pets, mortgages, right? and they don't have any support. So right. they're much more likely to get burnt out. And I've seen a lot of that. Sure. A lot of Antioch people have jobs, right? Yeah. I've just seen a lot of students who are what I call pathologically independent. They, <laughs> they're used to being dependent on. Yeah. 
they're used to being the strong one and that that's kind of a profile that's attracted to being a therapist and then they become a they become a graduate student and for the first time in their life they're really really faced with their own dependency needs and really really faced with their own vulnerabilities and their own capacity for uh hard work Mm. and emotional drain and they're not used to asking for help now not every counseling student is like this but many are Mm. and so that's another uh, profile of someone that's vulnerable to burnout another one is just the more trauma you've been through yeah right you're absolutely going to be more prone to burnout because of vicariously being triggered by your clients but also just your own capacity for emotional um, outlay uh also people who don't talk about their vulnerabilities very much you know, I've had hundreds of supervisees and students, and I can immediately profile students now and supervisees. Like, oh, you're you're like this past student. Because there's certain categories. You know, they, have, they don't fit it exactly, but yeah. there's certain things where, oh, you're going to be one of those people. And not in a bad way, but I'm just yeah. like, okay, I've, I think sense. I've figured you out yeah. on some level. And one of the profiles is someone who just doesn't, is not comfortable asking for help. Uh-huh. And they're not comfortable saying, I think I've had enough or, and they're not comfortable saying, I don't really know what to do with this client. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I have some supervisees who, when we have meetings, they sit down on my couch and they're like, they, they, they just rattle off a bunch of uh, stuff that they're doing. And there's nothing in there that's like, and this is what I need help with. It's more of like, let me just report to you what I've been doing lately. And there's no implication like I'm here to get help or I'm struggling or I need your support or validation. It's just like, I'm going to report to you that I'm doing a good job and you will give me a stamp of approval and I'll be able to leave. You know? so they want the stamp. Yeah. Oh. Well, they want to, well, I think some of them are literally just trying to get their supervision requirements met. You know what I mean? Um, and they're not, they don't really want supervision. Mm. And that is the sort of person, because, you know, Bob, you are perhaps in the top 0.1% experienced able therapists in Seattle. And you'll call me sometimes for consultation. Yeah. You'll just be like, dude, I, I need to consult about something. Yeah. There's some kind Absolutely. of, some kind of wonkies happening right now. And, I just want to run something by you. Right. So that's normal. We yeah. are all like that. Like, oh, oh that was interesting. Um, I should run that by somebody. Or I wonder what so-and-so would do with this. And to be a novice therapist mm. and to have nothing. Mm. Again, it's not that they are waking up in the morning and saying like, I'm the awesome. It's more like they've always woke up in the morning saying, I can't really depend on other people for help or it's too vulnerable to ask for help or I need to depend on myself. I, I need to, I need to figure this out on my own. No yeah. one wants to be bothered with my problems mm-hmm. or whatever. There's a lot of different paths to it, but the result is that they are very alone and feel like they have to do everything by themselves and they just don't have that impulse. And so those people I think are more prone to burnout as yeah, well. Of course. Yeah. God, I've had a lot of good supervisors. Some not so great ones, but how many? So, how many supervisors roughly have you had in your career? 
because I've had 17. Because I had a bunch from my doctorate, you know. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I didn't have 17. Let's see. Somewhere between 10 and 15. Okay. Somewhere in there. And on a scale from one to five, yeah. with five being like a mentor, someone that is still in your head, that you always felt safe with, that taught you things, that was a, a guide to being a therapist and a human being. Yeah. And one being abusive, oh, like someone that yeah. you, you have trauma from. Yeah, yeah. And three being totally mediocre, like they're not abusive, but they never really helped me. Mm-hmm. I, I always felt sort of distant. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on. Their relationship mm-hmm. was. So how many of them were out of five out of your, say, 10 to 15? Two. That's me too. Yeah. Two people, number five. And I've had 17. How many of them were in the the two, three to four range? Most. Yeah. Like I haven't had anybody. I had one that I would consider abusive. Okay. So you have, you have one, one, yeah. two, two, fives, two fives and like 12 mediocre, varying degrees of mediocrity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Me too. Yeah. Uh, but you said I've had a lot of good ones. You said I've had, didn't you just say that? I've had a lot, say of good, a lot of like, good ones. I guess I should say I've been very grateful to the two that I've had because they've helped me a lot. I guess that okay. feels like a lot of good ones. Because I was worried. Because sometimes I worry, like, is there something about me that has had so many mediocre supervisors and some abusive? Because I found it to be true with other people as well. Not everyone for sure. But um, so, you know, you're, 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 Experience with media, mediocre supervision has validated my life. Yeah, I, I've I've had um, supervisors that I thought taught me well, but I, who I found to be abusive um, and shaming. Yeah, yeah. But it's like it's like I'm kind of weird because I actually learned a lot that I think was really I couldn't have learned. I I didn't have another forum at the time for, for which to learn it. Who knows if I would have sought it? But the actual experience of Working with them sucked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the two that I can think of were warm, safe, yeah. funny, yeah. nice, yeah. wise. One particularly was very wise. The other one I wouldn't call wise as much as just like smart, I guess. Yeah. I looked forward to talking with them. Yeah. They're still in my head. Yeah. I learned a lot. I just I remember just learning a lot Mm -hmm. like so what do you think about this like one of them was a big part of me learning about trauma learning about how to treat trauma is something that you cannot learn from a class i don't think i think you can begin the learning process in class but trauma is so complex and the treatment of it is so complex that uh, and dissociation is so complex and PTSD is so complex that I had to have someone to problem solve with. Like, so this happened yeah. and, and is cause it, cause the, the worry is like you can hurt people yeah. with trauma treatment. Yeah. And so you can't just go on a hunch. You have to go forth with confidence that you're not going to, that you're least likely to harm this person. And uh, he provided like a good portion of my uh, learning in that, that I spout on the podcast often. Nice. Anyway, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. First video. Thanks for joining me, Bob.
Yeah. How do you feel about doing your first video? Do you, do you, how do you feel about your shirt choice? Oh, not so great about the shirt choice. It's a nice shirt, but um, yeah. I'll dress next time. Uh, video was good. Where I is think. Where is Seabrook, Washington? Down there, Pacific Beach. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Ah. Yeah. So that does it for that episode. Out there, please take care of yourself because why, Bob? You deserve it. Yeah, you do. 